0: Hello and welcome back to Access Chat. It's great to have Daryl Adams with us today and great not to have a plant growing out of the top of my head. Thank you to Deborah for pointing out that I was having a bit of a green haircut last week. Um, So Daryl is the Assistive Technology Innovation Manager uh, in the Accessibility Division at Intel. Daryl, that sounds like a really exciting role. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing and, and how this fits in to the the
1: bigger picture at, at, at Intel. Sure. So, well, so I'm in. I work within the accessibility office, which uh, we we do a, a very broad spectrum of accessibility work across the company. So, my role is in the context of all of the the traditional work that you would assume would be happening with an accessibility office, where we're really driving awareness across the company and with with the. Expect or, or the intent of growing an accessible culture through training and education and events and just continuously getting that word out. So, a lot of what I do it involves that as well, but we have a team of people that are just, you know, that are continuously going down that path to make sure that Intel is becoming the, uh, you know, the most inclusive and accessible workplace that we can make it. So, for me in particular, uh, one, one of the, the, the pillars or focus areas of our accessibility office is around inclusive design and innovative solutions. And so, I primarily focus in that in that focus area. And what I what I'm doing is I have a program that's called Accessible Computing Innovation, and this allows me to work across the company with all the different organizations to identify different technologies and different uh, products that we, where we can drive more accessible experiences um, to, into, you know, into our customers' hands. And so I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of work here. It's, you know, that's a very broad uh, scope, but along the way, we're looking at, you know, we, we do everything from basic research in our labs, to product design that's you know more you know, that that's coming to life you know in the next couple of years so um, what do we like what are we, where shall we begin well well i mean
0: it's it yeah it, it, let's let's think about that because you know people think about uh, intel as being you know the chip manufacturer but it's so much more than just chips right so so what are some of the areas that you touch upon?
1: Well, yeah, so that's actually it's important to note that we mean you know, we obviously we do manufacture chips and along the way in addition we don't typically just create the chip and provide it to the customer. We we actually do the full system development as reference designs for customers so we can demonstrate what capabilities? What what the new capabilities of the chips translates into uh, when you think of it from the context of a user experience. So we we build laptops, we build um, PCs and servers and all these things. And in addition to that, we also have a large Internet of Things group, and we do um, a fair amount of work in five G and. Uh, and very significant presence with art, just in, in a very general sense, with artificial intelligence across the board. Um, so, where it's also, I think, important to note that we 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 are we we have a, like we have labs that do basic research, and you know, and, and so the function there is is typically fairly heavy with, you know, what is the user experience intended to be. But then we also have our product teams that have embedded re- research uh, uh, activities in them as well. So what I'm trying to do is get into each of these different groups and and basically bring the story around inclusive design and the importance of listening to the disability community to begin with. Because I don't think that... Um, this is one of those, certainly one of those areas where it's not a, s- a scenario where we create, you know, throw the technology at the problem. I, I think what we're trying to do is be aware and to be listening to understand exactly what these problems are and then how we can apply our technology or more hopefully how we can evolve our technology to specifically address these problems. So I'm, I'm really one of the big things that's kind of a, a foundational component to what I'm doing is creating the systemic processes to where the voice of the disability community is consistently heard across all of these research and design uh, activities that, that occur at the company.
2: you know i i think one thing daryl that and, and also welcome to the program um uh, one thing that uh, some of the corporations that i work with have complained about the most is almost um the lack of understanding um by accessibility experts to understand the complexity that someone like an intel or even atos or these big companies dell microsoft just the sheer volume of, you know, where you have to go. I mean, when we talk about including all the stakeholders, just so you brought up a couple of really good points, like the embedded research, you know, the projects are being done, but there's embedded research in there and really bringing together all the truth. I, I say stakeholders, but all the different operations and just it, just the sheer volume of what you have to get your hands around to make sure that you are supporting inclusive design, that things are fully accessible, that you know you have the right accommodations in place, so that your employees can bring their best self and be as productive. There's so many moving parts. How do you really get your hands around all those moving parts? And also do you and Neil might want to weigh in on this as well. Do y'all see that um, sometimes the accessibility um, community, the disability community, other communities don't really understand um, all the different moving parts that you're having to deal with to make sure that things are fully accessible to all people, all customers, all employees.
1: Yeah. I I have to imagine that that is the case because you're, you're, Absolutely right around the complexity. I, I, I sometimes marvel around the fact that that products get produced at the end of the day. When, when you think about the the thousands of people that are required to end to end produce a single product, yeah, you know, from the the planning and the the research through the design through the uh, all the systems engineering work that's applied in that process. And then we haven't even gotten to the to the to the manufacturing part yet, which is a whole another level of significant complexity. But not only is this thousands of people, but it's also all around the world. And and it's not like all of the people that work on a product work in the same organization either. So we have serious organizational boundaries to be crossing to get these things done as well. So just in the in this context of doing business, that that is in itself an, an absolute. Uh, massive challenge, and I, I think you know. And for you know, what we're concerned with is sort of both sides of this. And I think you just touched upon that, where we want to be able to have a a workplace environment that is not only accessible to people with disabilities but welcoming. And I, I want to see Intel be the place where, as somebody with a disability, you want to come to work because it's a great place to work and and you can do your job and you can contribute and you know that's true i think uh, in a, in a large part across the company we 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 that can be that reality can be had but like everything and and i think you've touched on this in the show in the past as well is that this is a, such a journey i mean what you had mentioned it it is complex and it's not perfect and we are on that journey with everybody else and one of the things i'm really hopeful for here is that I uh, or in one of the projects that I'm involved with as part of the accessible uh, computing innovation program is this notion that we're actually doing research with Intel employees with disabilities. So we're directly engaging the the employee base to understand where their barriers are in the workplace. And then looking at our labs technologies to see if we can apply work that we're doing in the lab to directly help in this workplace environment and that's exciting because you know regardless of what comes of that it's engaging the the intel community and people want to be involved and that's the one big finding I've seen is that everybody is excited about being involved in that type of research.
2: Sorry, I'm the first to not go off mute. Daryl, real quick uh, follow up, and then I know Antonio has a question. But you yourself have been impacted um, as a member of the disability community, and I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind exploring that a little bit.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, I probably should have <laughs> explored that up front. Yeah. so I, I... I
2: forgot to. Yeah. <laughs>
1: My, yeah, so I I didn't just land here on accident. This, this, like, speaking of journeys, I've had a significant journey at Intel where I have, I I started at the company in 1996, and so I've been here quite a while, and um, I have a degenerative eye condition, uh, retinitis pigmentosa, and I'm legally blind today. And I'm also completely deaf in my right ear as a result of a surgery that I had back in college. So it's been quite some years where I've been dealing with pretty significant uh, sensory impairment or you know sensory deficit. But over time, because I've had a degenerative eye condition, it's like the, my, my context has been changing. And so when I first started working, there was no, no need for assistance or accessible solutions. But over time, it's become more and more uh, necessary. And so I've been self-taught in terms of what assistive technologies will work for me in which contexts. But what I really realized, and I think this was back in about 2013, is that I was spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to do my job, just treading water, basically. Like, how can I just perform the basic tasks of my job effectively? And then I thought, well, I, I'm working at a company where I've got all these brilliant engineers creating awesome technology, well, I, I need to figure out how to redirect my time to not just help me in my job, but I can make this a career and I can I can figure out how to help Intel create products that will be more useful to more people around the world. And so that's what I've done.
3: So uh, Derek, you know, uh, can you uh, tell us more about um, how you are supporting your own employees uh, at, at the workplace and you know and through the course of your career or what are the, the things that that you that you felt that if someone today is going into a, a journey of creating a, a collaborative inclusive workplace what they really need to do the co- ethical they need to do at the core great question
1: well I think there's a lot of Core. <laughs> That's a big core, <laughs> yeah. and you know, just thinking about what we have done, just as as you know, what I guess speaking from the example that I that I've lived is that, and this took a long time. So you know, so our accessibility efforts have been, have have not are not nearly as old as the company. So we're we're you know, I would say we're fairly new to the game in terms of the the longevity of our company. Um, but what's what's been interesting is the 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 rapid rate of of success that we're having they say over the last four to five years. And I, I attribute that a lot to not only executive sponsorship, but but broad leadership sponsorship, where it's not just a, a single person that has an interest in a space who decides to take on the you know the champion the champion role but across the board, when I speak to leaders at Intel, they're they're very bought into the ideas of, and to ensuring that we are an inclusive company, period. And I think a lot of why I see this success here is because we're thinking about inclusion you know, in a very broad sense and doing some remarkable things in that space as far as you know, bringing um, just equity to the workplace in general, and then because we have a, an accessibility office, we're now able to, to continue to, to push the message that disability inclusion is a very core part of the inclusion message. And it resonates. I think, you know, the stories resonate and people want, you know, I, on an almost, I would say daily if not, or weekly, if not daily basis, I'm working with people or meeting new people at the company that I haven't met before, talking about our story and what we're doing. And people want to help, you know, just bottom line is they, they, you know, people love to be involved in projects that do good things.
2: Yeah, I, I was, I, I was talking yesterday on a show and we were talking about employees, regardless, you know, of where they work, more and more they want Purpose. They want to have purpose. Yes, I want Intel to be wildly successful. I'm so happy to work for them, but I want to have purpose. I want to feel that the work I'm doing at Intel or Atos or Huawei or wherever you are is actually adding value to the world. I know that's something into both Antonio and Neil working with Atos. And I know it's very important to you, Daryl, but more and more, this is something employers need to understand. Employees want to have purpose, they want to make it want, they want to be better. They, they want it to be bigger than just a paycheck. And I think the work that you're doing, the work that we're all doing is one way that we can make sure everybody's included, but the employees feel like they're adding value. Go ahead. Dan.
1: I totally agree. I, I think you know, I'm seeing that. And I think that, well, I see the trend. I don't know that it's necessarily a new trend, but as far as it feels to me, like it, like it's, it, it's, becoming more of the conversation where uh, and just they're just there's just generally more interest and there are it, it, i find people wanting to volunteer to participate which is a which is a pretty incredible thing because everybody is so busy <laughs> you know no nobody is sitting around looking for things to do but they're still willing to to volunteer and to contribute where they you know where their expertise makes the most sense so it is it's it's nice
0: so I, I fully agree with, with what you both said. I, I think that when we look at the uh, the studies that have been done uh, and we look at employee engagement, employees are happy when they uh, what they do in their daily work is, and what the, the ethos of the company is it relates to doing something that they can buy into. So that that sense of alignment of purpose really does, uh, help people be satisfied and happy at work and, and let's face it right now for a lot of people works all we've got or homework blurring the whole thing is it's <laughs> pretty messy right now in 2020 um, as we you know have, have uh, welcomed work into our home lives and um, our, our our world has shrunk dramatically to our, you know, to our sort of closer environs uh, due to various sort of lockdowns and so on. So I think that that sense of uh, mission for an organisation, that, that sense of we're here to create something great and it's not just a new shiny thing that goes faster and processes more, but actually thinking about how that impacts for positive impacts on the world and positive good is is fundamental to to how we really get our organizations to be effective because effective organizations are ones that get the best out of their employees it's not the ones that have the best technology it's the ones that have the most engaged workforce so um and and so i think that Aligning that and bringing that back to the sort of disability inclusion piece. Now, when you can demonstrate that you're building technology that actively includes people, when you can demonstrate that you're building programs within your organization and frameworks and uh, organizational norms where there is not just an acceptance of disability but a welcoming of it as both a source of innovation and as part of people's everyday lives and work lives, then I think that you're you're helping your organization to be more effective. That said, doing all of that is really complex, especially in really, really large organizations. and And when people tell me not not to boil the ocean, <laughs> I, I usually respond in that uh, in that I have to actually because it's the only way that we're going to uh, to do some of this stuff. We have to take a sort of ecosystem wide approach, and that requires us getting lots of things working in in lots of different places and spinning all of those plates. and I'll stop
1: gesticulating now and let you go. <laughs> <come. laughs> but You know, one of the things that we're, that we're doing this starting this year earlier this year, we uh, announced this program, company wide program called RISE, which is responsible, inclusive, sustainable, um, and how we enable all of those things. And it's a 10 year uh, set of 10 year goals. And one of those goals is to increase the number of employees who self identify with a disability to 10% of our workforce globally. And In order to do that, there's you know there's a lot involved in that statement around you know the the hiring processes and the how do you self ID across the world because there's a lot of differences around in different countries around what's what you can cannot do and and creating an environment where people are comfortable doing that and so this is you know we're now very focused on all of these elements to figure out how do we make that goal how how do we achieve that goal and that's exciting to me because that is now You know, when we talk about accessibility, we now have a framework to say, you know, we need to have a, we need an environment physically, digitally, and otherwise that is accessible to all people, including across the spectrum of disability. So how are we going to do that? Because this is a reality that we are, you know, this is our workforce and this is the world because our workforce should be representative of the greater, our our customers and the, the world in general. And it's just nice to, so we're not, so it's not our accessibility office in a corner trying to make this happen. It's now broadly accepted that this is the path that we are on and how are we going to be successful
2: doing it? It's really um it, it's exciting listening to the things that you're doing. And I know that Intel is partnering with other large corporations to have even bigger impact because Intel is obviously a big partner with other companies. But I, I know you talked about other things that Intel was doing besides chips. I think a lot of us know, you know, we all have those little, uh, the little stickers that say, you know, powered by Intel, but You'd mentioned that y'all do, you know, artificial intelligence, IoT, 5G, things like that. How are with some of these newer, really big technologies that are emerging, like 5G? I talk about 5G all the time. Connectivity is, is as critical as technology. If we don't have good connectivity with all these rural uh, problems and lack of, you know, reliable uh, internet, it, it's, uh, you know, for example, stop. 40% of the children in the United States have been able to be educated during covid crisis so connectivity is very important part of it but when you look at you know the ai projects or the iot and i understand those blend together in the 5g how, how do you apply what you are doing in other parts of the company to those big uh, efforts that are 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 changing every moment of the day
1: yeah there's a lot here and i think one key for me is th- there's a big difference um a shift i'll say in in technology when you bring ai into the mix in a, in a very general sense so as an example we you know so our the the, the processors that we make today they're um, they're known as systems on a chip so pretty much the industry has shifted to this notion that you don't just have a general processor and it's a generic thing that you plunk into the machine and it just does everything So on that single product die is a set of core processing units that we, that we know today as a processor, but then it's surrounded by a a bunch of supporting technology or co-processors or accelerators that do very specific workloads like AI and machine learning inference um, that are specific to computer vision or, or, or audio, you know, speech recognition and these kinds of things. So they're very, um, Very purpose built and extremely efficient, power efficient and extremely low latency. And they don't affect anything about the traditional usage of a computer. It's the processor is doing it, still doing all that work. So it's kind of complex. But the point is that because we have all these specialized bits going on in that, in that product, we now have an opportunity that we haven't had over in the years past, like prior to now, where we can start looking at completely new ways of interacting with a computer because you can you know the ability to talk and for the computer to recognize your voice and recognize what you're saying and all of these things is becoming significantly more powerful and and without even impacting what the computer already does and because of that now you like know, it really this is opening up some doors that that haven't been able to be opened in the past um, and the same thing goes with computer vision. Being able to, you know, imagine, you know, computer vision algorithms really being able to understand what's what this what is displayed on the screen beyond what a screen reader can do. So a screen reader is is simply, you know, reading the text, but it obviously has problems when the, when what's on the screen is not text. But a computer vision algorithm can can. Address that problem, and I think you know there are a lot of very broad applications, kind of in that general space, that are going to be coming to fruition over the in the, in the years to come because of these the way that AI and um, kind of very low power inference is being just baked into everything that we do.
3: Uh, Intel is also known for being the company who gave a voice to Dr. Stephen Hawking. I- you know you have you know you have i, I was uh, before the interview i was reading some of the work that you did and it is particularly interesting to see the the multidisciplinary and the number of engineers that were involved that are involved on this type of projects so and we see that you know is a, a a continued process of change and you were just mentioning about some developments develops in technology you know in the area of artificial intelligence but uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, technology that is being created by Intel and being created by others, what are the things that you see that excites you and that you see great potential of improving uh, improving accessibility?
1: I think, well, sort of expanding on the work with Stephen Hawking. So, so we were deeply involved with the Stephen Hawking's voice, but also basically his computing environment for, for many years. And, you know, it was very fortunate that for all involved that, you know, not everybody in the world gets to have a team of engineers dedicated to their, to their computing needs, but you learn. So, you know, it was so important for Stephen to continue to communicate, you know, as, as his disease progressed um, and the challenge, the technical challenges were significant. Um, but what we did with that is we took all of those learnings and all of that the software and the hardware that that created that um, that environment for him, and we made it open sourced. It's called the Assistive Context Aware Toolkit, and you can Google that and see. And basically, you have access to all those pieces. So, if you are somebody or know somebody that has something similar to what uh, you know, ALS or Motor neuron disease, that types, or or anything that really prevents you from accessing a computer with a traditional keyboard and mouse, uh, display type of scenario, you this um, toolkit can adapt to whatever functions a person has. And today, you know, you still need to have somebody that actually does that for you. But we're getting to a point where I think you know this the the adaptability will be to will be fairly straightforward, and um, it'll be easy to map this technology to, to somebody's uh, specific needs, which I think is a really important point is around, you know, disability in general is a very individualized uh, problem statement. And so, you know, even, you know, two people with the same physical disability in two different contexts need different things. And so we can't, we have to figure out how to continue to build and introduce technologies that are highly customizable, configurable and adaptable. And that's what I think. That's the kind of the path that I'm wanting to go down. One quick thing around: uh, we've recently extended the the, the work, the, the toolkit, from Stephen Hawking to um, working with Peter Scott Morgan, who's the kind of bills himself as the world's first human cyborg. Um, same kind of ALS type of situation. Where he no longer speaks, and he's he's now an avatar that um, that that, and, and he uses his computer to speak. And we've integrated eye tracking to help more, well, a combination of eye tracking and predictive uh, predictive text and speech synthesis to help him communicate more uh, more regularly and, and more uh, at, a, at a more normal cadence than otherwise, than he would otherwise be able to do. And I think that technology is extremely exciting um, where we can take that in the future.
0: That, that sounds really interesting. Um, and I've got, Someone you know, fairly close to me in the organisation that would probably benefit from um, from from that too. Um, that, so I'd like to follow that up with you later. Um, am I on mute? Nope. No, Deborah, you were signalling to me.
2: I'm uh, um, saying uh, me too. Uh, Rosemary Musaccio is our yeah. chief accessibility officer. She would greatly benefit from something yeah. like. Yeah.
0: So 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 yeah. Our, our CTO advisor is uh, would would definitely be super interested. Um, I'm I'm an old time speech recognition guy. I've been working with speech recognition for like twenty years now, and and I thought it was really interesting what you were talking about with the you know the the dedicated chips because when I started with speech recognition. Um, we were actually building computers specifically to run speech recognition systems. And we were looking at things like the physical placements of the cards and the fans and everything else to, to deal with mechanical noise interference and everything else. And, and the fact that all of that processing is now done on dedicated chips, taking the load off everything else is, you know, is a really big significant step forwards because it is, processor intensive it is to get to get speech recognition right to understand the nuance to get the the correct concatenation of words and to to really um do a great job um is complex um and 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 i and i think that that beyond dictation those conversational interfaces um are are, are going to be one of the significant steps forwards in how we um interact with technology over the next decade or so i think that the recognition part is only um only the start of the challenge that we have though because actually um, presenting the information back to people when you're having this kind of two-way dialogue with a, with a computer system needs some thought in how we design those systems because at the at the moment you, you can talk and the computer will recognize what you say, it's that next step as you start having that interaction process is to understand when it presents you with choices that it doesn't overload you with choices. You know, one of the things about a drop-down menu is that you can still see all of the choices. So if you have a mega menu, you may have 20 choices, but you can see them all. Whereas if you go into a um, you know, you, you call your local insurance company. Just let's let's say we've you know you've you've had a little accident on the road, maybe run over some some creature, um, and uh, damaged your car, and you need to get something fixed. You dial the insurance company, and they present you with fifteen different voice options, and you go through this voice menu. And 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 if you're anything like me or Deborah or my parents or anyone that's older, your memory can you can only hold so much in your working memory. So how we then design these dialogues and this flow to be truly conversational um, is what's going to you know, really drive that user adoption and usability. And that's going to take tremendous, not only design, but computational power. So I'm really interested in what you're doing in that space.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you said. I, I think um, that is where I want to see at least a... a you know, there's always going to be a visual component to computing for for people that that see. You know that there's a lot of great things going on in data visualization in particular. But when it comes down to whether you cannot see or cannot see well or are are contextually in a place where where seeing is not the the primary thing to do, having that really rich voice conversational computing type of interaction is really where I want to see things go personally. I, I believe that, uh, and, and what your, your points around kind of cognitive overload and getting the design right is important. And I think a lot of that has to do with prediction and, uh, and predictive mechanisms in many different senses. But if, as, as a system becomes more more aware of what your patterns are, it will it'll be able to eliminate a lot of the options and a lot of the things that it might have provided otherwise, because it knows where you're already going. And, um, and a lot of that, it's actually also an interesting thing because from a privacy perspective, what I'm, most of what I'm talking about either can or at least in the near future will be able to be done locally on the computer. So it's not something that needs to go to a cloud or some other company to get processed and come back to you. This stuff can be done locally so you have real extremely low latency so we can get back to that natural voice cadence and voice interaction back and forth. But it's also, um, you know, hopefully we're moving to a point where it can be extremely private as well.
0: Failing again. I'm muted. Um, I think that's really interesting because we've, we've seen the, the, the mass movement of, of things like speech recognition and, and to a certain extent text-to-speech and all of these services into the cloud, because that's where the power has been. But that has given uh, great opportunity, but also created a great deal of fragility in the the services. Because as soon as you lose connectivity, you lose the the ability to, to use the service. So um, this, for me, was always a problem and one of the reasons why I was always still very keen to do speech recognition on device and for the processing for all kinds of assistive tech to be on device wherever possible, because it means that it's much more robust. So yeah. Yeah, because that, that, that if you need assistive tech, you... You need it all the time, or you or you need it to be available all of the time. You may not need it all the time, but you need it that that availability and reliability.
1: And one of the things that I think about along those lines as well is just sort of a, a foundational design concept for me is that not only do I want to see the assistive technology on the device, but I, I want I want to consider accessible experiences and assistive experiences. As core to the device, and so everything that we build, it's built into rather than needing somebody needing to buy a special assistive version or accessible version of something. It's really, you know, if you think about the the device market and all of the the the, the customized assistive technologies. Um, they're expensive, and one of the ways that we can drive down cost is to include these things as core capabilities. And when you do, you know, high volume manufacturing and you know, high volume business, then that drives down cost and just makes it, it normalizes everything, and it makes things over time less expensive.
0: Yes, uh, and 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 that's it. You know, we, we you know, you scale, and and with scale, you get price reduction and it becomes normal and and yeah i'm like you wanting to see this stuff embedded and and meshed. so so um we just talked about stuff being on device but there's also uh you know ubiquitous computing now computing is everywhere so um a lot of uh, a lot of stuff is going to happen on the edge so you've got all of this sort of processing going on on the all of these little devices you know that you don't traditionally think of computers how do you how do you see that working in terms of inclusivity because some of these are and they're not having huge amounts of processing power but how do you how do you see us being able to use these devices that are connected um in conjunction with assistive tech or Or how 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 can we use this kind of new edge technology IoT to really include people?
1: Wow! So you know, (laughs) I I um, I'm a big user of those types of of, of devices. So I have um, you know smart home devices as an example, smart you know lighting switches. anything that's automating a workload in the home is particularly interesting to me because with would limit with the eyesight limitations. A lot of things I do are just inherently inefficient. And so the more that I can automate something and outsource <laughs> like, like manual tasks around the home, I'm all for it. So I think in terms of inclusion, that is, um, that's a big deal. Like it's it, the, the ability to automate tasks and then uh, and schedule, so it's not just automation, but it's smart scheduling. So you're also um, bringing the, the either the lighting to the task and only then, and, and and managing. You can manage costs that way as well. So there's a whole bunch of really of goodness around that. The question for me is always going to be the complexities around the environment and how fast the industry can continue to consolidate on standards so that every product will interoperate with every other product without having to buy into specific ecosystems. Um, There's some of that going on, but that needs to improve because it does get very complex if you have multiple ecosystems in your house, or if you're, you know, as a basic user that just wants to have a simple function, it has to be simplified. And so I think that's one of the challenges. Um, And then also the cost, you know, these things today, it's, to collect a, a household uh, to build a, a smart home is involves a lot of different, um, edge devices, which is, uh, it can be costly, but I do think like everything else that that, that continues to fall and, it, and it, at certain there's price points that make them more attractive and we're getting there. And I think it's just a matter of, uh, you know, a bit more time before that becomes just re- you know, really the, the, the go-to, um, technology for folks with varying disabilities, I think.
0: Excellent. So um, we've reached the end of our time now. I could ask questions for a lot longer. Uh, Just thank you very much, Darrell. It's been a a real pleasure chatting with you. I I need to also thank our our friends at Barclays Access, MicroLink, and uh, MyClearText for helping us stay on air, stay captioned, stay relevant. Thank you once again. Have a great weekend, and we look forward to chatting with you on Twitter on Tuesday.
1: Thank you very much.